Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from Biden's tax proposals to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at ExporterTax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to be joined by David Cuellar. David is an international tax partner in our Mexico City office and leads PwC's tax and legal services practice in Mexico. David, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Doug. How are you? Happy to be here. Well, David, it's been, I, I, I think, over 18 months since I've last been in Mexico City, where I've been able to see you and your team. And Mexico City is one of my favorite places to, to, to visit. And I very much look forward to the pandemic hopefully calming down in the very near yeah. future. We're coming back to some form of normalcy and really look forward to, to come down to Mexico City. It really is one of my favorite places. Where where are you most looking forward to traveling when the, the pandemic is done? I know you, first of all, have worked all over the world, been all over the world, and I've certainly seen you a lot here in the U.S., but uh, when this stuff is hopefully behind us, where are you looking forward to, to head next? Well, yeah, as, as you just mentioned, actually, yeah, I, I used to travel a lot, and I guess uh, I was not missing that at the beginning, to be very honest with you, the the, the all the traveling for work. Now I'm starting to miss that, perhaps not at the same level as we, as, as you or I were traveling before, but certainly at least some travel. But from a, from a personal standpoint of view, actually, my, 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 my girlfriend is Chilean and we were planning actually a really nice cruise in the south of Chile to go to the glaciers and all the way down to Patagonia, oh, wow. basically to the Chilean Patagonia. So if you ask me what I'm looking for, basically to, to, to restart or to actually have that, uh, that trip that, that that was canceled because of the pandemic. Yeah, that the Patagonia is on my list. That sounds awesome. And I just to, to reflect on your first comment. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, for most of us consultants, right, that we're traveling four or five days a week before the pandemic, I think that the pandemic has certainly changed how we work. I can imagine many of us getting back on the road some, but to your point, I can't imagine we'll get back to the same volume that we were doing before the pandemic, which I think is frankly good for for all of our mental health and yeah. you know families' well-being and everything else. We figure out how to do a lot virtually but I, I you're absolutely right like after being kind of locked down for well over a year certainly missing the personal interaction both with our colleagues as well as our clients and it does help to be able to to do things in person so i'm certainly looking forward to getting back together with you the team and then obviously our clients yeah me too so Let's move to uh, the, the topic at hand. There are a couple of interesting things that I want to, to talk to you and some, some late, latest developments that's going on from a Mexico perspective and really one that is, is very timely. We're recording this here in early May and there were some major changes that were proposed or at least announced in November of 2020 that are now coming online. So we're going to spend some time talking about the, I think what has been referred to as the Mexico outsourcing reform. And then want to spend a little time at the end talking about Mexico's BEPS journey, kind of where you've been. You, Mexico has really been on the forefront of some of the BEPS changes yep. after the BEPS 1.0 proposals and wanted to get your reflections on where things are heading. And uh, Mexico was one of, if not the early adopter of Pillar 2 um, and wanted to get some of your reflections on that. 
But let's start with the Mexico outsourcing reform. David, what what is that? Just can you kind of frame up what is what is this new law change and uh, um, how are how are Mexican taxpayers going to be impacted? Yeah, certainly, Doug. And, and, and I guess I will start with a, with an explanation as to what the outsourcing regime or the outsourcing was from a Mexican point of view. And, and actually, we many companies in Mexico, both foreign multinationals operating in Mexico and also Mexican multinational companies, for a variety of reasons, anything from financial, operative, unions, labor, whatever, they, they used to be organized as a in, in a group where basically in many cases you had a holding company you had an operating entity or several operating entities and then you have actually a labor service provider which is basically an insourcing company that was basically lending the employees or actually providing the employees to the operative entity and that operative entity was the one using the employees to produce to render services to uh, manufacture to whatever whatever the activity of that company is to, 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 to mine, to, 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 to produce oil or, or whatever. Now, the, this reform actually is reforming many laws, uh, not, not, not comprehensively. It's, it's just a few articles of every law, but in reality, I can tell you, I'm, I'm pretty certain that this is one of the most disruptive reforms in terms of how, what this means to Mexican taxpayers in the last 20, 25 years. Again, not because of how many articles were reformed or how many laws were reformed, but rather because of the implications these, these, these new changes have. The, the reform included actually the federal labor law, the federal tax code, income tax law, VAT, social security, housing fund, and a couple of other laws uh, that are applicable to government activities. The, and, and because of this variety of laws involving or where that were involved in the reform, we believe that this will be highly disruptive for, for companies. They will need to restructure their operations in Mexico in, in order to be aligned with the new rules, which imply the involvement of at least human resources, tax, financing, treasury, IT, legal teams, and, and many other areas in the, in the company. Certainly the change management is, is going to be an issue here because we're talking about people. Is, is, is not is not that we're moving assets or that we're moving intangibles or or that we're doing a debt push down or anything like that. These changes will certainly increase the labor cost to operate in Mexico, especially because the typically in, in, in Mexico we have something that is called profit sharing, and this profit sharing uh, actually by law by the previous law it was it was basically the ten percent of the total profits of the group needed of, of the entity sorry needed to be distributed to the employees of that entity then uh, by having insourcing companies so companies that were holding the labor and then were leasing or lending or providing that labor to the operating entity then the the, the groups or the, the the these labor companies were paying profit sharing 10 percent profit sharing on the profits of that upper of that labor service provider rather than on the profits of the operating entity. Typically now, uh, taxpayers in Mexico have, and, and I'm, I'm going to oversimplify because this is very complex in, in reality, but if, if I want to oversimplify the alternatives that they have, honestly, there is no, no good alternative 
actually there are some alternatives that are less bad than others because every single alternative is going to be costly and is going to be painful to to implement but typically right now they have either the merger as one alternative where they, they basically can merger the labor entity or entities into the operating entity or entities and and by that way actually transfer the employees or they can actually uh, do an employer substitution where basically they only move the employees from the labor company to the operating entity. In both cases, then these employees will be entitled to, in general terms, to the 10% profit sharing uh, that is produced by the operating entity. But as part of the negotiations in between the private sector and the Mexican government, they reach a conclusion and they reach an agreement that is actually provided by or, or provided in the new regulations, in the new law, whereby this profit sharing is going to be limited to either three months salary of the employee or the average of the profit sharing in the past three years where that was actually higher than the three months salary. So it's one or, one or the other, the, the higher of both, but, but not the 10% the profit sharing on the total profits of the company. It's still determined as the 10%, but then you get that limited to, to what I just mentioned. I don't know if this is a, a good it. start of the explanation. Yeah, that's a very good good overview. And now let's 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 unpack a few of those things. And so, um, you're right, David. I, the the concept of the services company is just something that I've seen. I think really throughout both of our careers, right? And you you know how good my Spanish is, but like it's very common to see within a Mexican group an entity called the something something servicios, right? Yeah. And that is this typical service entity that, as you mentioned, for a variety of different reasons, Mexican groups would set up a separate company to house the employees and then have a holding company or operating company or operating companies. And so historically, right, the operating companies would then pay some type of service fee or some form of remuneration to the services company for the license, leasing or renting or however you want to describe it for the use of, of those employees. And so now this rule no longer allows that payment. And so maybe how did the rules actually operate? Does it deny the deduction? Um, I, my understanding is that it can actually create potentially, is it criminal penalties for, for those payments? Sort of how does the rule operate and when does it become effective? And then I want to unpack a little bit about, you know, what companies can be, can be, uh, can be doing to or what they need to do to react to this. Yeah, certainly, Doug. And, 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 and I would like to start also by saying that it's not only the insourcing that gets affected, it's, it's also the outsourcing. So there are many major, many major uh, Mexican or foreign groups that actually do this outsourcing as their core business. That's also forbidden now. Uh, we will have one exception, which is the specialized services, which basically means that whatever is not your core business, you can still subcontract to the extent that that specific service gets approved by the labor authority as a specialized service that is not part of your core business. What, what does that mean? We really don't know because actually we're still waiting for the rules, uh, for the final rules to be published. I mean, we have the law, but now we need the regulations and those regulations in principle should be published no later than May 23rd. So we're wait, still waiting for that. Uh, but on the other hand, so what this really means is that this will affect any 
any group that in Mexico is operating through insourcing, so having its own services or services company, as you were just mentioning, but it will also affect any group in Mexico that is using outsourcing from a third-party provider or any entity in Mexico that is actually providing these outsourcing services. So, so this this is extremely broad. is is very easily almost almost every single company I can think of will, will have one issue or the other or or all of them at the same time. Uh, certainly, there may be some exceptions, but in reality, is that most of the groups and most of the companies operating in Mexico will have at least one of these one of these issues. So, what does this mean? Yeah, this and, and to that point, just to yeah. that point, David, just to unpack that, just because it, it's so it is fascinating. So, the point is, it's not just the services entity. Let's say you have a manufacturing facility down in Mexico, which is obviously very common, and then you have a separate services entity, which are all the manufacturing employees. Well. Let's say that's not the case, and the only outsourcing or insourcing payment is a payment to somebody for, for example, janitorial services, right? Though that would also be caught, right? So it's not just the fact that you've got a services entity, um, it, it, unless there's an exception that applies, right? And you had mentioned the exception for certain specialized services. Um, and so, so it could be so. So, if, if it's a if it's a specialized service, then these rules do not apply to that. And can you talk about the, what what a specialized services are and, yeah. and how those are characterized? Yeah, certainly. I can I can try to explain what we believe those specialized services are because, as I just mentioned, we're still waiting for the regs to be mm -hmm. to be published. But but just using your example, I think that's a really good example. So. If you are a manufacturing entity, a maquiladora, for example, and then you have uh, an, an outsourcer that is providing you with labor, and that labor includes, for example, the janitorial services, but it also includes the workers, the workers in the manufacturing facility, then it is likely that all those workers in the manufacturing facility will be deemed as regular outsourcing, not specialized because that's your core business and therefore is, is now forbidden. And it is likely Again, we still need to wait for the regs, but it is likely that those janitorial services may be deemed as a specialized services to the extent that the provider of those services gets a formal registration and, and, and then can provide that registration to you. So how the registration process is gonna look like, we don't know yet. Uh, mm -hmm. Whether or not every type of service could qualify as a specialized depending on to whom is being provided or by whom is being provided, we don't know yet. But certainly, the, the, as a general rule, it looks like that whatever is not part of your core business, then it can be deemed as a specialized for you, like janitorial services, or for example, you are subcontracting, I don't know, the, the cafeteria of your, for your employees. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, th those employees will be in your, in your facilities. There, there will be, at least in certain way under your control and direction, but in reality is that your core business is not providing cafeteria services at, at the end of the day. So is it, this is just an additional benefit for your employees, for example. So under those circumstances, those could be deemed as specialized services. And what does this mean? So as from the law was published on April 23rd, as from April 24, from a labor, from a legal labor point of view, outsourcing, insourcing, except for that deemed specialized is forbidden. So, so in reality, at this moment, almost every Mexican company may not be complying with the law because of course, no, no one can actually change this in one day. So that, right. that, that's for sure. 
It has been said in many forums by the executive power, even by the labor authorities that they will, that they will give some period to, for companies to adjust, but this is not provided by law. So technically speaking, they could knock on your door today and say, Hey, you are doing something which is illegal because you are subcontracting these employees. On the other hand, you have the tax consequences. These tax consequences basically mean that whatever, if you are actually using these outsourcing employees to, to, to do your core business, then any payments that you do in that regard, as from August the 1st, so here okay. we have a period of time, but as from August the 1st, will be deemed non-deductible. The VIT on those payments will be deemed not creditable. And in certain cases, if you are doing this, this could be seen as tax fraud. So, so it's very serious because then it's not only the financial labor and tax consequence, but rather a potential criminal offense consequence. And they believe that this can be seen as a qualified tax fraud, which actually means that if the authorities go all the way to that classification, then the legal representatives of the entity may end up having to have this litigation in jail. So, so this is, this is very, very serious in, in, in general terms, as you can see. Yeah, obviously nothing that the taxpayers want to, want to have to, to potentially deal with. And certainly there's uh, a desire to comply. Or, or a need to comply, obviously, that um, for, and, and as you had mentioned, this is not just Mexican multinationals, many U.S. multinationals, and just not U.S. multinationals, foreign-based, non-Mexican, foreign-based multinational groups would typically operate like this. What seems very challenging to me, David, is that, you know, it's it's early May, these rules were announced in April. Yes, they were originally proposed in November to give taxpayers and Mexican businesses some notice of this, but these type of operational changes can take a significant amount of time for sophisticated organizations and complex large organizations just from a systems perspective. And, you know, we just think about the various deals and projects that we work on, business model restructurings, and we know how long this takes. Um, and, and so we have until August first effectively to to comply um so i i assume that you know that we're going to get regulations here relatively soon but what are you suggesting to taxpayers and, and folks in mexico because at least from my experiences most mexican groups operate with this type of insourcing yeah. entity or with some type of insourcing servicios entity and even those that don't still have some form of payment that even if it may be considered a specialized service, you still have to go through the administration of qualifying and getting everything registered. So uh, what what advice and what recommendations are you giving to taxpayers on, on how to comply? Or is it just like, hey, you got to get this stuff done and just start, just yeah, keep well, going? <laughs> well, there are many things. So certainly one recommendation is you should have started in November. <laughs> Think, at least yeah. thinking about this and, and some did, but reality is we are where we are. And most companies only have basically a little bit less than three months from, from now till August the 1st to, to have everything in place. So recommendations that we are, that we're telling our, uh, to, 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 to this, to these groups, to these companies is let, let, let's start with the easy part. So 
whatever you think could be qualified as a specialized service, you need to, you will need to review all those agreements. You will need to make sure that they qualify as those specialized services once we get the, regula the regulations. And you will need to make sure that whomever is providing you those, those services is actually registered and that that registration is actually, uh, is actually made public by the labor authorities because they, they will have a sort of site where you can actually consult whether or not a specific company has a registration for a specialized services or not. So that's, that's kind of the, the easy part. And just that part is going to mean a lot of work to be very honest. Then you need to go and see what, what other outsourcing services you are using or you are providing that do not qualify as specialized services. And in those cases, when, when you're using those outsourcing services, then you will need to, to decide whether or not you will want to bring those employees into your organization as, as, as your own employees, or whether you, you will go to the market and find some, some other employees. This has many different consequences ranging from financial costs. You just mentioned systems in, in Mexico, for example, you, you, you may be moving employees into an operating entity and that operating entity is not registered with the labor authorities, for example, because it didn't have any employees. It's not registered with the housing phone authorities or with the social security authorities. So you will need to get all those registrations in place. You will need to actually deregister the, the employees from social security and housing fund perspective from the old employer and then to the new employer, for example. So all, all that is going to take a significant amount of time. All that you also need to do in the case that you have insourcing. So where you have your own labor service company or companies that are, that is or are providing services to your own operate, operating entity or entities. That, that part is the hardest part. And that's going to be even more complex because then actually you may end up uh, in situations where, for example, you have one labor service provider, but you have five operating entities or you have three different labor service providers in house, each of which actually provides services to your 10 different operating entities. And each of these labor service provider providers has a different union and has different fringe benefits. So you, you may end up needing to equalize those fringe benefits. You may end up with two or three unions in one operating entity, which may not be ideal. You may need to actually redistribute the, your labor force in such a way that is practical uh, and, and, for, and that from practical point of view is still something manageable. So, so the, the, certainly the, the advice that we're giving companies is you need to, to do it now. You need to, so there's a lot of sense of urgency. You need to really think what is the less painful alternative for you. To be very honest, this, there, there is no one size fits all here. Not at all. Some, for some companies, the merger is the best alternative. For some other groups, the employer substitution is the best alternative. And from some others, actually, they need to, to do a, a mix. Maybe some employer substitution here, some mergers here, uh, some spin-offs, some moving around of assets as well, not only employees. So, so this, uh, this may well be the year in which we will see more movement in terms of reorgs in Mexico. Then this also may cause other issues which are not Mexican. Just for example, what happens if you have a labor entity, which is an SA, which is, and, and, and you, you, you can tell us more about this, but what happens if that SA is an uncheckable entity from a U.S. point of view? And then you have the operating entity as an SRL that is already checked from a U.S. point of view. Then you do the merger and then you end up 
with, with some issues that I, I, I guess you can explain to us better, but certainly some foreign issues. And for example, I would be interested in hearing your point of view from, from the U.S. in this respect. Yeah, and uh, you've worked with U.S. multinationals long enough, David, that you know when you start merging and moving legal entities that if you have a U.S. parent on top, <clears throat> excuse me, we certainly need to think about the U.S. tax implications. And uh, you did a, a perfect job describing it, that if we have separate legal entities within a, a U.S. multinational structure and we start to move those around, combining them, or we start moving assets between them, then including labor force and workforce in place, we need to think about the U.S. tax consequences. And so there are a variety, right? They're from a subsea perspective. You want to think about how would that the merger, for example, be characterized from a U.S. tax perspective. You would need to think about from a transfer pricing perspective, what does that do to the group's intercompany arrangements? Do you have some form of value shift? And so I think it's really important, particularly for those U.S. groups, to make sure that the U.S. tax folks are involved beyond the Mexican tax folks and labor and systems and everything that you describe to layer on the U.S. tax consequences. And then to your point on, let's say, an SA potentially merging with an SA, depending what the characterization is from a U.S. tax consequence, the, the subsequent structure could obviously then have also U.S. tax implications. So in other words, if you had a regarded Mexican structure, so in other words, if the main operating company was a CFC, and then for some reason after the merger, depending on who survives, that becomes a disregarded entity, that could obviously change the go-forward footprint and U.S. tax characterization of that entity going forward. It could create sub-F, it could potentially be checked into the U.S., a, a number of different implications. And so really a great point that beyond just understanding what those Mexican tax consequences of the, of, the, of the transaction or restructuring might be to comply with the law, you need to factor in the U.S. tax consequences. And then, you know, obviously, if there's a different foreign parent on top besides the U.S., a non-Mexican parent on top, you need to think about what the consequences are up the very top. Um, yeah, one follow-up question. One follow-up question for you, David, sure. on the, and I think you may have mentioned it, but just to make sure that we're clear, because it was something that I wasn't entirely clear about, is what happens if you have the service entity or employees of a service entity that are serving a variety of the different operating companies. And so, like, so if you have, like, let's say, a key employee that's maybe doing work for three or four different Mexican operating companies, <clears throat> how is that managed? You potentially have to merge all of those operating companies so that you don't end up with any payments between the entities or what is the kind of practical result of of a key employee or employees that serve a number of different operating companies or manufacturing facilities or whatever the case might be yeah no certainly and and, and that's that, that, that's something that actually is provided by the by the reform especially in the case where you have a shared service center for example so, so this is not for, and it's not going to work, for example, if you have an, a labor service entity, an insourcing entity where actually that entity has, let's say, workers in a factory that are working for different operating entities, then that, that's going to be a nightmare. But if you have, for example, some key employees and, or, or some functions like finance, like tax, that those you can keep uh, as part of the group to the extent that they are being provided to the same group under the same holding company uh, and that holding company has at least the control of that uh, of all those entities to which those services are being provided so so in reality for for large multinationals to the extent that that's managed properly it shouldn't be a big issue for those 
uh, extra services or additional services provided by the shared service center. But for those groups that are not organized under one umbrella, under one group, under one holding company, or maybe even, for example, large Mexican family-owned businesses where, where they are owned by the same shareholders, but not necessarily by the same holding company, those are going to provide an additional level of complexity because then you are not going to be able to provide those services from a shared service center unless you can prove that this is the same group as I was just mentioning. So, so yeah, this is provided by the law. In, in several cases, it, it should be relatively easy to comply with this. But, uh, but if we are talking about, like, like my example, three labor entities, 10 operating entities, and three labor entities providing labor, but actually manufacturing labor to those 10 different entities, then you may end up needing to, 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 to mix and match different employees in, in, in between different operating entities because, or, or actually even merge some of the labor providers with one or more of the operating entities so that actually every single surviving operating entity has the employees that it needs to do its core business. I don't know if this explains. And one, one additional comment is that something that so, several of of the Mexican groups or the Jew or of the four or the foreign groups with Mexican operations are actually analyzing as we speak is potentially filing an injunction against the law. It is very unlikely that that injunction will be won at the end of the day. So it's very likely that that, that injunction will be denied. Uh, however, the whole process may provide additional time to comply with this regulation. So, so several groups are, so, some, some groups are totally against filing injunctions and they say, no, no way. I, I'd rather comply a little bit later than filing injunction. Others are saying, yeah, I, I need the injunction. I know that I'm, I'm not going to win, but at least I could get a temporary suspension that buys me additional months to comply with this new law. As we discussed, some of these changes are just take a significant amount of time from a yeah. legal and, and systems perspective uh, uh, amongst all of the other issues that you have raised in registrations and administration. So really great summary, David, a, a major change, as, as you said, uh, unlike, thank, frankly, anything that we've seen in our careers. And we've certainly seen quite a few Mexican law changes, yeah. but you know, we, we've certainly seen this in, in other territories and including in, in the U.S. when, you know, tax fraud and you start using the, the, the fraud word comes in as a potential implication of failing to comply with these rules. Obviously, executives, whether they're tax executives all the way up the chain, want and want to comply with these, but it just takes time. So we'll continue to, to, to follow this and track the particularly these injunctions to see what could happen on the filing date, but it, or can see what happened with respect to actual implementation date. Uh, but August 1st is certainly something that we'll all be, be keeping our eye on. And, and yeah, August 1st from a tax perspective, but not forgetting that from a labor perspective, it is already illegal. So great, so certainly great the, point. The sooner the better, not, not even August the 1st. If you can sort this out because your structure is quite simple before August the 1st, you should be doing it now. It's a great point. I am constantly needing to be reminded, David, that I need to take off my pointy-headed tax hat. And there are, you know, other other laws and rules that are um, the taxpayers and operators need to comply with. So it's a great point. Exactly, it's the tax law that is eight eight one, but the labor law is is currently uh, in effect. So I just wanted to spend the last few minutes. Um, 
David, with you getting just your your insights and reflections a little bit on how Mexico has reacted to to BEPS. When we got the first BEPS paper way back in 2015, which seems like ages ago, Mexico was, I think, one of, if not the really first adopters of of a variety of different BEPS anti-abuse type rules. And one of the rules that I'm particularly interested in is a, the non-deductibility on, on payments to, to certain entities. And the reason I'm particularly interested in this is because we've been spending a lot of time talking about BEPS 2.0. And one of the aspects of BEPS 2.0 is, is Pillar 2, which involves a potentially global minimum tax. And then one of the backups to the global minimum tax is is a is a rule that would say if there is a payment you know from a particular entity to an entity to another related party that is not subject to an appropriate level of tax and it's not defined what an appropriate level of tax could be at least what we're seeing in the the BEPS 2.0 papers so far but it would deny a deduction to the payor on that payment to an entity or that is not subject to an appropriate level of tax and when I saw the BEPS 2.0 paper, I was like, well, this sounds very familiar to uh, yeah. a Mexican rule that has been operating, I think, for, for a couple years. So can you just give us a little bit of background on Mexico and the, the BEPS journey that you've been on? And then tell us a little bit about this underpayment rule. And I'm interested just how that applies and, and wondering if other jurisdictions may be able to learn from the, the operation of that rule in Mexico. No, certainly, Doug. And, and actually, as you just mentioned, Mexico was one of the earliest adopters of BEPS, if not the earlier one. Uh, back in b- b- back in those years where you just mentioned, where we, when we had the first paper, actually, I can still remember that we had the first paper published by the OECD. And then, literally, like two weeks later, we had proposed legislation that was approved two weeks, two weeks later. So basically, we had... We had real legislation that was totally BEPS aligned uh, in, in, in a month or two months time in, in reality after that paper was published. So, and, and Mexico has adopted many different things around BEPS. Uh, you, you can name them. I mean, MLI is still something that is still yet to be approved by the Mexican Senate. Uh, we're still waiting for that approval. I think it has been. Uh, delayed because of other reforms like the subcontracting reform that we just mentioned. Uh, it, it could happen this year to be effective in 2022, or maybe could happen actually 2022 to, to become effective in 2023. That's for MLI. But on the other hand, we, we have implemented uh, some other changes, like for example, 30% of bid die interest limitation rules, mandatory disclosure rules that are all BEPS aligned at the, at the end of the day with, with, with a Mexican flavor. Because for example, in, in the case of the interest limitation, we also have other limitations. We have withholding taxes. We have uh, inflation adjustment, which very few countries have. We also have uh, a limitation on, on hybrids and we also have a limitation on thin cap. So, so it's, it's, that, that, that 30% interest deductibility limitation is on top of everything. Now going to the specific rule that you just mentioned. So how, how does that rule work? So basically it states that if a Mexican entity pays whatever for, for, for services, products, whatever, in, 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 but in principle services, if that Mexican entity makes payments to a foreign related party and that foreign related party 
is actually subject to a tax that is less than 75% of the tax that would have been paid in Mexico, then that payment becomes non-deductible. So in general terms, and, and I'm, I'm going to oversimplify this, Mexican rate is 30%. So basically, if effectively subject to a rate which is less than 22.5%, then that, that's going to be viewed as a payment to a related party, which is in a tax haven and therefore become non-deductible. So that's, that's the general rule. And again, I'm saying that I'm oversimplifying this because in reality, you will need to calculate an effective rate with a quite cumbersome calculation in which you, you, you end up applying Mexican rules to the foreign income at, at the end of the day. But, but let's just speak about 22.5. If that, if, if that uh, revenue is subject to less than 22.5 abroad, then very likely this will qualify as a payment to a related party, which is resident in a low tax jurisdiction and that therefore becomes non-deductible. Then that same rule has exception. And the exception says, if that foreign entity is resident in a country that actually has a broad exchange of information agreement with Mexico, and that company has certain level of substance, and by substance is a, a really broad definition, basically it says, if it has the assets, the employees, and and, and, and the resources to provide those services, for example, then this non-deductibility rule is not going to apply. However, there is an exception to the exception. So if you, if you are in, 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 in the light of some, some type of hybrid uh, structure where basically, for example, where Mexico is actually paying to an entity that is viewed as an entity from a Mexican perspective, but is transparent from the foreign uh, tax point of view. And that is not taxed as a consequence of that hybridity. Then the exception to the rule does not apply and therefore is still non-deductible. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit cumbersome and, and it's easier to explain when, when you can have like, 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 like some boxes and numbers in the, in, in the in the screen but but in general terms that's the way it operates so to the extent that it ends up being taxable in the hands of the shareholders for example then you should be fine but if this is part of a hybrid system that ends up with no taxation on the other side then basically mexico denies the deduction yeah so the way i the way at least i think about it and it's probably oversimplified as a u.s practitioner david is that they've layered the hybrid rules on top of the non-deductibility rules that is um, but it was also i think just because you were you know early adopters where i think what we've seen throughout the rest of the world and in europe as an example where they've already adopted and even in the u.s these anti-hybrid rules and then we'll see if they if these other jurisdictions then layer on this non-deductibility rule um, but a, a couple of just reactions to this rule, and I remember we obviously spent a lot of time when this this first came out. But you know, you had mentioned the twenty two point five. Well, the first thing that probably comes to our listeners' mind is like, well, wait a minute, the U.S. is at twenty one, so payments yeah. from Mexico to the U.S. potentially are subject to this non deductibility even before you start thinking about FDII and some of these other 
you know, and of actually how you actually calculate what the, the actual U.S. rate of tax is on those payments. Um, and so you have to go then to the to that exception that you described, make sure that you qualify, that you've got the appropriate substance in the U.S., which I think for most groups isn't, isn't an issue. Um, but, but one of the things that I wanted to mention, or at least give clarification, is you had mentioned all types of payments, right? So cost of goods sold. So we would typically think about interest and royalties, which have certainly been the subject of U.S. legislation and U.S. focus and even, you know, BEPS focus. Uh, but beyond those types of payments, cost of goods sold are obviously a major deduction. And my understanding is, is that the, the cost of goods sold could potentially be subject to these rules. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. It could potentially be subject to these rules as well. And so, you know, obviously gross-based taxation, which if you effectively are losing cost of goods sold, could be a significant impact. And so I think that was kind of one of the collateral implications as these rules came out and kind of a, a warning for for other jurisdictions um, where they set that that rate. And like in Mexico, you'd mentioned it was 75% and then how those rules operate and with respect to what exceptions may may exist, that could be a really significant change to the global tax system. And it's interesting that Mexico has been leading the way as we've been thinking about, you know, how these potential rules and particularly this under, the denial of, of, of deductibility for undertaxed payments could potentially apply. Agree. Yeah. So, David, I think we're going to leave it at that. This was a fascinating discussion, uh, a, a lot to, to, to think about from a Mexican perspective. And again, reminding folks about the, the outsourcing and the insourcing and just a, a lot of work to do for those that are operating in Mexico yeah. that have these services entities. Um, so thank you very much for joining us, adding some clarity to this, and then also giving us a little bit of insight into the, the Mexican BEPS process. We really appreciate it. No, thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure to be here, Doug. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you to David Cuellar, PwC's Mexico tax leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.